0: This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 162 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an exciting guest. I enjoyed this interview so much. Dr. Sylvia Gonson-Bully is joining me. She's an internal medicine physician and obesity medicine physician. And she helps people lose weight using exactly what I talked to you guys about, a customized approach and really understanding how your body needs to lose weight and how your mind needs to lose weight. And really approaching it from that standpoint. That's why I enjoyed this interview so much because we speak the same language. It was great to just have a chance to sit and chat with her. She is an author. She has a book entitled Embrace You and you can find her at embraceyouweightloss.com. I hope you really enjoy it. Now, we did have some issues with connection and I'm hoping that we will be able to edit it out where you can hear and listen comfortably If there are a few glitches in this interview, I apologize for it. It was just such a good interview that I didn't want to um, miss it or or not share it with you because of some connection issues. So if there are a few left after editing, just bear with me and listen for the content because there's really good tips in here. What we're talking about in this interview is how to know what you should weigh. If you're wanting to lose weight, how do you know what weight that should be? And that is what we're talking about. So hang on and check out the interview. I was also just going to ask you for your help. I want your help getting this podcast out there. If you're listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, could you share this episode with somebody else? Or could you take the time to go and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast? All of those things help this podcast get found, and when the podcast gets found, more physicians get helped so that they're not suffering with their own weight. So if you could share something about the podcast, share this episode on your social media or with a friend, or head on over and leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. All right, let's get to the interview. Have a fantastic day, and I hope you enjoy this. All right, welcome to the show, Sylvia. I'm so happy to have you. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Siobhan.
0: Let's start by just having you introduce yourself to everybody and tell a little bit about your personal story.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm Dr. Sylvia Boley. Formal introduction I'm a dual board certified body positive weight and wellness physician. I'm boarded in internal medicine and in both obesity medicine, founder of Embrace You Weight and Wellness, and best selling author of Embrace You Your Guide to Transforming Weight Loss Misconceptions into Lifelong Wellness. But really, I am a believer, a wife, a mother, a daughter. I'm a busy person and I have lost 60 pounds, not once, but twice and kept it off for the past seven years through really learning to embrace myself and then develop a lifestyle that works for me, not based on anyone else. And so that's what I love. I'm passionate about doing and helping other people do as well. So important.
0: I talk about that a lot of like the need. It can't just be a diet somebody else hands you. It has to be like a customized, personalized approach uh, that actually addresses everything that you need to address.
1: Yes, yes, your whole
0: life. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. And we were talking a lot before we actually hit record. We had some really good stuff, guys, that we didn't actually (laughs) record. (laughs) But tell us a bit about your experience as a physician and like where you feel your weight issues came from with that 60 pounds
1: yeah so you know, I was one of those people who people probably hated really honestly, where I didn't have a weight issue <laughs> growing up um in this traditional sense in that I was always normal weight. I was very active. I grew up in a family of restaurateurs. There was food all around me all the time, and we celebrated with it, we mourned with it. You know, food was a big part of who we were. So through that, I developed kind of a habit of emotionally eating. But what I would do, is go back and diet. So it went through that cycle of, okay, overindulge, then diet, get your weight back down. And I was deathly afraid of gaining weight, honestly, because my grandmother, Sylvia, who I'm named after, she had diabetes and hypertension and eventually had a massive stroke. And really, when the doctors, they blamed everything on her weight. They were like, it's her obesity, and that's the reason why. So I was so scared of gaining weight growing up. And that is part of why I was calorie counting from the age of 15, even though I was always around food. So when I think about like my foundation of like what I call disordered eating, it's not a true eating disorder, but we have that diet culture, really like calorie counting. That's where it's really started. And Fortunately, I had the metabolism to kind of keep up with this, but pregnancy was that hormonal trigger that like caused my grandma Sylvia obesity genes to kick in. And so I gained 60 pounds with my pregnancy with my son. And, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. How did I let this happen? But, and I thought I would just lose it by doing calories in versus calories out. Well, this also coincided with the busiest time of my life. I was chief resident of a like inner city internal medicine program here in the DC metro area. And then also, you know, so navigating that, we decided to move to a new city, to Richmond, Virginia, just to Try something new out of the city. So we moved with our son. My son was then diagnosed with late onset Hirschsprung's disease. So he had to get surgery and it presented with an obstruction essentially. And so then we had to get surgery and all of this is happening all at once. So, needless to say, no weight loss was going on at that time because I was like so stressed. And on top of that, how did I cope with stress? What did I learn to cope with stress? was food. That's what I had always done. So I like to say, you know, I gained 60 pounds because of pregnancy. I kept 40 of it on for two years because of a combination of sleep deprivation, cheap pizza, and people pleasing. And that is really what (laughs) kept it on. And so when I finally decided, hey, I'm going to lose this weight, I tried to go back to doing it the way that I always have, which was calorie counting. But really, I did not have the bandwidth for it, nor did I have the time. I mean, I was seeing 23 patients a day in a busy clinic at my new job, coming home, having to take care of my son because my husband was commuting four hours a day. And then, of course, doing all the charting of primary care. And so it was just, it was tough. So I set up this aggressive plan. I was like, I'm going to no more sugar, no more rice, no more pizza. I'm going to calorie count and I'm going to exercise an hour each day within one week. Guess how much of that I had done, Siobhan?
0: My guess would be you may have had one good day of that, and then (laughs) life got in its way.
1: It's, I don't even remember good day. <laughs> the is <more laughs> like, I don't even think I would. but it was. I did not do it, and so I just felt like an incredible failure. I felt like frustrated. I'm like, this is what I always said I didn't want to do. Oh my god, I'm going to get diabetes, and then I won't be able to practice. You know, you we going down that rabbit hole of all of these things, and so I, I confided in one of my girlfriends who we've always dieted on and off together. And I thought she was going to be like, you know, try this shake, try this protein. But she told me something that changed my life. She was like, be nice to Sylvia. I like her. And just that simple phrase, like be nice to yourself. I realized I'm like, I'm not, I'm talking to myself in a way I would never talk to a patient. I would not talk to my husband that way. I would not talk to my child that way. Why am I being so unkind to myself? So really that call to self-love and self-compassion was like a spark for me. And when I did that, I realized that if I was really being nice to myself, I wouldn't put the pressure of trying to make all these changes at once. And I wouldn't put the pressure on of trying to exercise an hour every day when I didn't have time most days. But could I do 10 minutes? I would focus on what I could do. And so I started making those small changes. And then it opened my eyes to something that was even more life-changing was that everything we learned in med school about weight was wrong. It was wrong because here in the States, obesity wasn't recognized as a medical condition until 2013. And I had graduated in 2010. So that just showed to me that I needed to learn all that I could. And as I did, I really realized it was bigger than calories in versus calories out. But really, as the obesity society says, it's energy in versus energy out. And my energy was being depleted. And distorted in so many different ways as I was trying to manage stress, as I was people pleasing, as I was trying to be the perfect doctor, the perfect wife, all of these things. So that was what really changed my relationship with my body and how I approach weight.
0: I love everything that you're saying here because it's exactly what I talk about with people like The need of, you know, taking what we can learn from different resources and different our education and other places, but then giving ourselves permission to apply it to ourselves in the way that it actually works in our life that Mm -hmm. we think we're going to be able to continue to. Because that's when you told me your plan of like just cutting it all out and being perfect with your (laughs) exercise and stuff. It's just so classic, like so many physicians, when we want to start losing weight, we set such high standards for ourselves, mm-hmm. which we do in every other area of our life, right? Exactly. But then they're unattainable. But then when they were never attainable in the first place, because of all these other important roles we play, mm-hmm. we beat ourselves up, which is exactly what you said. Like we take ownership that we didn't do it right, even though it was never attainable in the first place. So I love everything that you're talking about. We're peas in the same pod when we're thinking about this. <laughs> and so when, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about just kind of the residency experience and its trigger for developing eating habits. And I think it's not our main topic. We're going to talk about like how to know what you should weigh and stuff. But I do think it's such an important topic to talk about because that residency experience does have some ripple effects out into our worlds mm-hmm. afterward. Can you Absolutely. speak a little bit about that?
1: Sure. You know, on one hand, I loved med school and residency, especially resident. I'm like, I get paid to learn as an Uber nerd. I own it. I call myself a cool nerd. Like, I'm like, I got paid to learn. I learned. I loved it. And that's part of why I was became chief resident, right? Because I loved it so much. But the... Downside of it is, again, as we kind of talked about, being a woman in medicine, which we don't talk about, we came into a very male-dominated field initially. Now, thankfully, not so much anymore. And so I almost feel there was a stripping of who you are to kind of show that you fit in, that you fit the role, that you fit who you're supposed to be as a doctor. And really how we kind of cope with that stripping of yourself is then food becomes an easy way to soothe and to comfort yourself. And all throughout my residency experience, there was always easy access to very, to fast food, to the cheap, (laughs) carby, fatty kind of things, which we call comfort foods here in this states, But that really is what kind of got me through. And so again, as an emotional eater, that's really what I went back to a lot of times. And so it's been interesting on my own wellness journey. And initially it started off as a weight loss journey, right? I was so focused on the scale and getting those numbers down. But again, as the Picture got bigger, and I realized that it's about so much more than the scale. It's about truly energy in versus energy out, and rechanging my whole lifestyle. Then I realized that. Part of what needed to heal was the parts of me I lost in residency, the parts of me that I kind of gave up. And I'm not even talking about like really deep stuff. I'm talking about simple things like crafting. OK, like I like to make it. I'm an arts and crafts person. So I realized that was a hobby that I just like, I don't have time for that. I need to do this. You know, you get so used to saying I don't have time for that. And what we don't realize is a lot of time, I don't have time for that translates to I don't have time for me. Because during that residency training, you are kind of taught, you don't have time for you. The focus is the patience. The focus is pleasing your attending. It's pleasing whoever's around you. And do you need to use the bathroom? Do you need to go on a vacation? Do you need, mm -mm, I don't think so. You know what I mean? So if part of the healing that had to occur was, re-embracing, re-falling in love with that person that I lost during the training process. And really then that opened the doors to see, okay, how can I restore like enjoyment, peace and prioritizing myself in my life?
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a, the losing us piece is so important because we lose it. I agree with you in medical school and residency, but then also I think the other place we lose it is in motherhood. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're, as a physician, you're juggling working, and having kids, it becomes that other layer where it's so easy to not have time for you.
1: Sure.
0: And Definitely. it really takes work to, even to the point, like, I remember this, I don't know if you've had this, but I remember times when I was working with some of the first coaches I ever worked with, and I was saying, I want to do something fun. And they said to me, okay, well, what would that be? And I'm like, um... <laughs> I don't actually know what would be fun like I lost myself to that degree where I yeah. couldn't even say what was fun like I totally lost any sense of what I enjoyed and I think a lot of people listening to this don't have hobbies and have a hard time even thinking of what their hobbies used to be because they've come so far from that but I agree it's such an important piece of the long-term weight loss journey of actually giving yourself the gift of letting yourself be you <laughs>
1: Yes. And And do the fun things for you. (laughs) So true, so true. And, you know, one of the first things I do a lot of times too working with people is I have them do like a self-reflection inventory. Like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite Mm -hmm. food? Because all of these things we kind of forget. Once we go through like residency, once we become mothers, once we g- and we move to a new city, like even for the women who aren't mothers, like you, there's just so much giving of yourself. And we kind of talked about that as women, you know, we're structured or socialized to be the caregivers, to be the nurturers, but that is often taught at the expense of ourselves, and it really shouldn't be. And so I love that we're having these discussions where for womanhood. And wellness, where we get to prioritize ourselves and we see that it's actually not selfish, but as some authors have said, it's self-full because when we're able to be, when we're full and whole in ourselves, we're then able to serve people from a wholeness rather than being- Absolutely.
0: And I I think I talked about this just on one of the recent podcast episodes, but I also really believe, like I've got preteen daughters, so I spend Mm. time thinking like, what am I wanting to model for them? And I think this is a big thing of like- Mm -hmm. I want to model for them that women take care of themselves. Mm. They can care for a lot of people, but that they take care of themselves. And that's how you care for more people instead of, I think, what was modeled traditionally or is modeled for most of us is we sacrifice ourselves.
1: Yeah. Oh, there it is. You said it. We sacrifice. Exactly. We sacrifice rather than even really serve because serving is not a bad thing, right? Serving has benefits, not only socially, but even emotionally. And we see that even when we look at the literature in terms of our quality of life scores and things, people who who serve others, when it's done from a true place of wholeness is able to actually enhance your life and make you feel better. But a lot of times we try to sacrifice instead, which is so,
0: true yeah such good stuff and like so so important if any of you guys are listening to this episode and your brain just wants to focus on yeah but what's the diet what's the right <laughs> diet answer <No. laughs> like go back and listen like it's it, the diet isn't the answer like yes you have to make food changes to eat of to course. lose weight mm-hmm. but the way you make food choices and you make them where they're sustainable is you care for every other aspect of yourself and you make the food choices that actually feel good because you're caring for yourself in those food choices. That's the answer. And it's not a straightforward answer. And I know we really wish it came written down on just a sheet that we could check off. <laughs> but it takes work. It takes time to figure it all out.
1: It does. And it's a journey. I think a lot of times, yeah. you know, for those of us who grew up in diet culture, and I totally get that, like, you know, there ain't a diet on the market, I don't know, because even before I became <laughs> a doctor, like, I I was there for it. I'm here for it. What is it? Cabbage soup? What? Juicing? I'm here for it. You know, so I get that life. I'm, I understand that life. And I know friends who are still in that life. Even though I try to teach this, I still have to gently remind them. So I think what we're really driving at is what is your motivation? What's your why? Because a lot of times we have been taught to focus on the what, right? What diet, what food should I eat? What should I weigh? But really before the question that should precede the what is the why? Why do you want to do this? Why do you eat at night, every night? Why do you go at 3 p.m. and eat a whole bunch of candy. Like why? Because understanding that why will then help you develop a what that works for you. And so that is the piece that's missing. We we kind of have to start in the middle, right? Just at the what, but the foundation is the why. And so that's the point that we're trying to make here. And we're not saying it's going to take forever. I think both Dr. Siobhan and I, we both have tools, right? To help you because we've gone through this journey and we want to help facilitate so that it won't take forever for you to go to figure it out. But the point is that you have to be willing to go there. And part of how we have survived as doctors, I know for myself, I'll just own it for myself as someone. And we're not, we're so off script right now, Dr. Shoa, but that's okay. This (laughs) might be what the people need. But like for myself, I like, you know, we learn to kind of have a mask as we go through medicine emotionally, because when we put that white coat on, we're not supposed to have feelings. We're supposed to be able to sympathize, but not necessarily empathize. We can say it's empathy, but it's really like... Let me feel, but let me not feel too much. And I would say, honestly, part of even this awakening and coming back for me was just reconnecting with emotions and those uncomfortable emotions, right? Like that's some of what we're trying to hide when we're eating and things like that. Those uncomfortable emotions like sadness, like dag. I've been working on the pandemic (laughs) front lines for 20 months. I've seen people I never thought should die. Die. Like, and it's so hard because we're taught to kind of like soldier through and not even think about the emotional toll of that. And if food becomes an easy escape for it. So I think part of what we're talking about now is being willing to sit through those uncomfortable emotions of asking why, because why can be very difficult. Why can be hard to admit to yourself that, hey, I don't know what my favorite color is because I haven't checked in with myself in four years so Mm -hmm. it used to be hot pink but I don't know yeah
0: (laughs) I really think too important when we're talking about asking yourself the whys of like asking yourself the whys in a very compassionate way because we can say why with a real judgmental tone in our heads Mm -hmm. like why the heck are, (laughs) are we here again why haven't we done this and it's more like interesting like I wonder why Mm -hmm. Like a kinder, compassionate tone is what we're talking about. Just not all wives are created equal.
1: (laughs) No, that that is such a great point. Especially when we're talking to ourselves, like kind of getting back to what I said, where my friend was like, be nice to Sylvia. I like her. And same thing is like, even insert your name here. Be nice to Siobhan. Be nice to yourself. Like, And ask the way that you would ask your child, that you would ask a child, that you would ask someone who you love dearly. And that's what I think it comes down when we talk about self-love, like that relationship with yourself, that you love yourself dearly. What would that look like to speak to yourself in that level of kindness?
0: I love all of this. And there is so much like you and I, I think could talk for quite a few hours. I know <laughs> on yes. these different topics. But let's shift to the weight stuff. So yes. what we were talking about before we started recording is there's always that question of what should I weigh? And we as physicians having gone through medical school. Mm -hmm. tend to be very BMI focused Mm -hmm. of, you know, I need to be this specific BMI. I would like to be in that nice little green normal area when you look up the charts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's really interesting because I think as physicians, physicians know the BMI doesn't tell the whole story, but when they're applying it to themselves, they're using that in the scale measurement as like their whole definition of, are they doing it right? But let's talk more about what are the other options? Like, how do you actually know what you should weigh?
1: Yes. Oh, right. Now, this is a topic I'm super passionate about, so I'll try to be succinct. <laughs> so I divide it into two things. When I think about weight, I think about it in two components, your healthy weight and your happy weight. I like to say that healthy weight is facts. That is the clinical evaluation. And we'll go into detail about that. But happy weight is feelings. It's how you feel about yourself. It's when you look in the mirror, you're like, man, I am that girl. You know what I mean? And you feel good and you walk with that confidence and you know that you're just content in who you are and your body. So that is different from healthy weight. And no one can tell you you're happy weight. Only you decide it, even though there's a lot of societal noise that tries to influence it. So let's talk about healthy weight, though, because first of all, I like to say BMI is a lie just because it's catchy. But of course, that is not all to the story. But if you go back, can I indulge me in just two seconds on a history lesson? Because a lot That's of people nice don't job. really understand that the origin of the BMI did not start in the medical field. It actually started with a Belgian anthropologist and mathematician, Quint Lett. Adolphus Quintlet. He, in 1832, just made an observation, as anthropologists and mathematicians do, that as the Belgian people grew, that their weight changed in proportion to their height in meters squared. He said, this is cool. Oh my gosh, look at this formula. And he made a formula of it. And at this time, it wasn't called BMI or body mass index. It was just an interesting calculation. So fast forward from the 1800s to the 1900s. In 1972, Dr. Keys, no, well, your key, so no relation. Yes. To- I, I don't
0: actually want relation to this one, probably. <laughs> if it's the same Dr. of keys I'm thinking about.
1: So it's so key. He figured out that he was trying to find a way to standardize the insurance data. So insurance companies basically had this discriminatory practice of charging people more based on how much they weigh. Well, hasn't really changed much right now, <laughs> but back then it was very arbitrary. So basically they were just like, pick a weight and pick a scale. And they had these life tables and that's what they determined them by. So he was like, he kind of standardized this and formalized it. And so he thought back to that little formula that he had read about from point left. And he said, why don't I use that? We'll take the weight divided by the height in meters squared. So weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. And we'll call it the body mass index. So he starts doing this and they initially arbitrarily kind of pick a cutoff. And they said, which was 30, and then started using that as a threshold for people being overweight or having obesity. It got adopted by the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization in the 80s. And then that is how we kind of have gotten used to using the body mass index. But from its inception, there was two important things you have to know. It was never meant to be an individual assessment of weight or health. It was always meant to be on a population base. So that is to say, when I look at this BMI table or this BMI chart, as you know, so I'm someone who, I I know I look really tall, but I'm actually only 5'3", so 63 inches. (laughs) So when I look at my height, for instance, it says that between normal or BMI of 18 to 24 or to 29, I should weigh somewhere between 107 to 63, 160. 63 pounds A better way of thinking about this, though, is not saying that you should weigh 107 pounds or you should weigh 135 pounds like how we usually do it, but a better way of saying is that in a group of people, people weigh anywhere between 107 pounds to 163 pounds for that particular height, for a height of 63 inches. That would be a better way of thinking about it and how it was made to be used. If we are going to use the BMI for individuals, the best way to think about it would be as a suggested guideline for more Evaluation. So that is to say that, okay, if I look at the BMI range, it's saying that most people who are my height weigh somewhere between this weight. And we know from the data that at a certain cutoff, people who are above, let's say a BMI of 30, and that changes based on your gender, it changes based on your race and ethnicity, it changes based on your age, it changes based on your athleticism level or your muscle mass. So there's a lot of categories to where your cutoff or BMI is, and that has to be taken into account. But once I get to that particular level, then I'm more at risk for possible metabolic health diseases or specifically fat mass related diseases. Right. Because really the problem, the greatest flaw with the BMI is that it just looks at total body weight and it does not take into account body composition. And really, that is not just that total body weight on the scale, but we're really what we're trying to assess is your body. What level of excess adipose tissue or body fat do you have that's putting you at risk for metabolic conditions like insulin resistance, diabetes, heart disease, hyperlipidemia, or, you know, all of these things that are related to having excess body fat over a certain threshold. So the first step is to really, when you look at someone, I call it your specific adjusted BMI. So taking into account like all of those factors, the age, the race, ethnicity, the sex, particular biological sex, you're also your athleticism. And do you have any of the weight related conditions? Because all of those are going to change your cutoff or your threshold for your BMI. And then rather than looking at the lower end of the BMI, we really should be looking at the higher end and saying, okay, once a person hits, for instance, my height again, if inches inches, if you hit above 164 pounds, then you may be at risk for weight related diseases. But let's do a deeper dive and look at your body fat percentage. Let's do a deeper dive and look at where your body fat is distributed. So central adiposity, let's do a waist circumference, really easy test we could do. Is that above 35? And let's look, do you have any, what we consider the obesity related conditions or metabolic health conditions? So hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, and see if you have one or two of those or you have risk factors for those, then all of that is going to define your happy weight. So that is the level of detail that should go into figuring out an individual's happy weight instead of just looking at a BMI chart and saying, okay, you need to weigh that. And really what it comes down to, if you read in between the lines of what I'm saying, it's going to be a range. Your healthy weight is actually a range. It's not just one particular number because, and that makes sense because when you think about it, our body weight fluctuates. Most human beings, even in a given day, your weight is going to fluctuate between (laughs) anywhere between three to five pounds in the day. So if you weigh yourself in the morning, and then weigh yourself at night. If you're a science nerd like me, you'll see it's going to weigh you weigh. And that's because of the pull of gravity. That's because of digestion. That's because of fluid retention. So many things that go into that number on the scale outside of your control, outside of just like what I ate or how much exercise I got. So that's a lot. Tell me.
0: <laughs> no, it's so good, though, because I think like in modern medicine, the use of the BMI has been distorted. Oh, Significantly. Yeah. And it, it shows up in so many places where it mm-hmm. is individuals. Like so Just like being obesity medicine, when we're applying for coverage for anti-obesity medications, it's BMI based. You have to kind yeah. of prove mm-hmm. it with BMI, right? Or mm-hmm. I do maternity medicine too in the family practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, we get people referred from smaller communities because they're not allowed to deliver in their community because of a BMI, which is like, that's a whole other topic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait uh, by yeah,
0: I know. And so it, I think it's so good for us to hear and be reminded of this is what it was actually intended for. It's been taken and distorted. Mm-hmm. And through kind of how it's been approached, we've been taught to apply it to ourselves as individuals and to others as individuals. Mm-hmm. And like, as a me- as it's when we're applying it to ourselves as physicians, I think it's really our brain often applies it as a, am I good enough? Like,
1: yeah.
0: you know, am I in this normal range means I'm good mm-hmm. enough. And if I'm outside of it, there must be something to be ashamed of, I think is how our brains often look at this. And so I think it's just so good to be reminded it's, it was never meant to do that. It can't measure that. Not yeah. to mention the whole thing that like your weight doesn't define your worth and all of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the BMI for surely
1: doesn't. Exactly. And it's just, again, if we take nothing away from what we just said, it is a starting point for the conversation and starting point for the assessment of your true metabolic health, right? And because ultimately, as we talked about earlier, the why, why are we doing this? Why, what is the point of even looking at the body mass index? Like, what were we trying to achieve from it? Why are we doing it? And it was to see where are you at greater risk for your health diseases, for diseases that could impact your life expectancy, could impact your health. And it's just one indicator. Now, I also want to just remind people, again, like we said that it's, it has to be specific, it has to be individualized. And we are just, I like to say we're in the prehistoric ages, maybe we're not quite prehistoric, but like I know that I have a, I have a dream 25 <laughs> years from now, I used to say a hundred, but I think it's coming sooner at the rate technology is going, like we're going to look back and be like, I cannot believe they looked at the BMI and that's how they determine what people should weigh. That's how they determine health, right? Because really people are so diverse And honestly, what drew me to interest in this field was we have known data that for Black women in particular who have the highest rates of obesity here in the United States. But we have known data that the BMI, the standard BMI chart, it overestimates obesity in Black women because by and large, we tend to have more muscle mass at lower BMI rates. And so, what that does, it falsely puts you in the category of obesity. So, really, when you look at adjusted BMI scales for Black women, our normal BMI is actually 32 kilograms divided by meter squared compared to 30 by the standard chart. But I will say in the work I've been doing, working with diverse populations and working with white women or Caucasian women. And again, race is such a spectrum, right? Because we're all a little bit of something. I dig in my family tree, my family backgrounds from Liberia, West Africa, but my grandma is Portuguese, half Portuguese. That's where I got this freckles and red hair from, you know, like go figure. So we're all on a spectrum. And so working with in particular Caucasian women, there's no adjusted scale per se outside of like obesity risk factors and comorbidities and age and things like that. But I tend to still see a lot of lower BMI threshold for that particular ethnicity. And I question if that's really true because a lot of times we can achieve a healthy weight even if they never get to that BMI cutoff, right? Body fat percentage is fine. We don't have any obesity related conditions. And waist circumference is fine, but we're still not meeting that even adjusted BMI. So I think there's just so much more research that has to be done. And we should just use it because we have so much data from it that has been done with the BMI. But it's just a starting point for the discussion.
0: Absolutely. And I think like what you're referencing there, too, is that the BMI, it says as a population, this group would be higher chance. But it doesn't say... If an individual actually has risk associated with their weight, yes, yeah. nor does it say if you're a healthy BMI that you don't have metabolic risk because we all encounter those, right? Like the mm-hmm. the sort of skinny, obese person that is thin and yet, you know, maybe has some adipose like intra-abdominal fat or other metabolic disease, even though their BMI is okay. Excellent. I agree with you. I think the more obesity medicine gets researched, I think it will become so much more refined and we'll have better tools of being like, this person is at risk. This person is probably not at risk, so that we can help people in the way they need to be helped.
1: But it's also going to take addressing the bias that exists, right, within yeah. healthcare. And unfortunately, because like we as doctors, as physicians, as healthcare professionals are not immune to weight bias because we've grown up thinking that that obesity is a lifestyle choice, right? That weight issues are all lifestyle. And so we still see there's a big reluctance amongst our colleagues to accept it as, oh, this is actually truly a medical condition. And there is not a lot, like I said, it's only been since 2013 that it was recognized as a medical disease. So it's not even been 10 years yet. And even still the work that, you know, places in the States, like the Obesity Action Coalition, the Obesity Medicine, Society, tossed like the work that is done by these organizations shows that there's still high levels of weight bias amongst providers, amongst clinicians. And so that's right. the first barrier to even promoting change.
0: And at a government level too. Oh yeah. I, in our province, the no anti-obesity medications are covered by the government.
1: Yes, mm-hmm.
0: even in like really severe situations such as people that are not able to participate in like a lifestyle type program or those situations where they need a medication that's mm-hmm. their option of treating our government views it as not being something that's ever covered, which is a completely weight biased view like it's viewing it as well you know we'll cover the diabetic medication because that's a disease can't help mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. you know the obesity and all these other people that doesn't warrant coverage is essentially the messaging that it gives which drives me crazy but
1: same here you're right the same thing here that's a great point because it's the same in the states exactly yeah and a lot of the things that we're fighting yeah
0: yeah and yeah i absolutely believe in all this what we've been talking about the mindset and the caring for yourself all that is so important in weight management but there is also people that need medications to control this mm-hmm. chronic medical condition and it is a very useful tool for a lot of people and, and so i really true. hope in the future it will be more accessible for because right now it's kind of a tiered access system for them okay totally got off track but let's <laughs> talk
1: about let's talk about the scale we need to part two.
0: <laughs> closely aligned with the bmi is scale so mm-hmm. you've already mentioned it's not a number it's probably a range that you should be aiming for Yet, our minds so like to have a specific number that we're defining ourselves by,
1: yes, what
0: are your thoughts about scale numbers and how to decide where you should be on that?
1: Yeah, so I think that's where we're getting to the happy weight again. Well, like where do you feel most comfortable in your skin, in your body? We all have it like right that weight where you just you put on your clothes, everything fits right. Like for me, I'm a big fashionista. You can't see what I'm wearing now. Like I get up in the morning, I, my husband teases me. I work from home and I get dressed every day. I just love getting dressed. So like for me, it's about the clothes. Like do these pants fit? Does that dress hit right? Like that is where I know my heavy weight or more specifically, y'all are my friends now. So I can tell you the truth. Like I'm a runner. Um, you were coming in my my trophies earlier, whatever. And when I run, There's a specific weight that when I run, my butt does not hit my back. Like, if I'm not, if I can run comfortably without feeling like my butt is like hitting my back and like just everything jiggling, then I know I'm at my happy weight because I just feel better. I feel more comfortable in my skin. I move better. So, everyone has to define for themselves. I think the easy thing to do is to, a lot of times that gets aligned with a number on the scale, one particular number. But when we do that deeper work, like when I'm working with people in Embrace You, when I'm talking to them and saying, well, Okay. So you say that number for you is that, right? But when you... Is that the only number that you can fit in your clothes? Is it only at 150 that you can fit in your clothes? Can you only run comfortably or walk comfortably when you're at that number? And then really, if you think about it, it's more of a range, right? There's even for our clothes, it's not only if I'm 145, can I fit into this dress? It's actually like, oh, I can fit in it for about there. And usually that aligns well with the healthy weight range as well. So I think once you embrace that, that number on the scale has so many variables and so many things that affect it and it can go up and down. And it's really not meant to stay at one number. Right. So I think knowledge is power. It's really not meant to stay at one number. Like your audience's position is nurse. So we talk about homeostasis, right? But homeostasis still is like there's a range. There's a range within in that. And so recognizing that to think you're staying at one precise number is not the idea. There's going to be fluctuations in it. And I think embracing that for you. What you're trying to achieve, where you want to look, how you want to feel, it can happen within that range. It's super helpful. And honestly, if I be very honest, so like in Embrace, I have two things. We look at scale and non scale approach, or I call it the scale data. First of all, I think of the scale just as data. It's there's no judgment there. There's nothing. It's not happy. It's not sad. It's not mad. It's just data. So that's the first thing. But then you can also look at your non scale data, like again, confidence, clarity, consistency, all of those things and compare the two. And I've gotten into a place personally in my own journey. I don't really need the scale data because I know, I know when I go for that run, if I'm feeling everything jiggling, if my butt's hitting my back, like I have gotten into where I'm not at my happy or probably healthy weight. I know that if I can't pull my pants up and I'm having to do the jump, (laughs) the jiggle jump, (laughs) then... I am probably not at my happy, healthy weight. So I can tell. And I think that's the ultimate goal where you don't need the scale data as heavily that you're so comfortable in your body, you're comfortable in yourself that you can tell for yourself without anyone or any other data point having to tell you.
0: Yeah, I love that. All of it is so good. And I smiled at the data because I talk about that a lot too. Yeah. I d- talk about, you know, the scales, data and stepping on the scale at one point is a data point, which is what you just said. Mm-hmm. And honestly, and nowhere else in our lives or our professional lives do we worry about one data point. No. Like we oh, sure. look for trends, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and yet with the scale, that one data point, if we give it the power can destroy our day, sometimes yeah. multiple days. Mm-hmm. And so holding it as it's just a data point. And it, what matters is the trend of the data points when you're wanting to lose weight are the trends going in the direction that you want. But yeah. Any other thoughts about people figuring out their where they want to be for their weight or in their weight loss journey?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, so many, right? That's why i are <laughs> <up. laughs> But when you were just saying that that trend, like looking at the trend, I think it's important to know when you need the data and what kind of data you need. I mean, honestly, if you're someone who has been through a lot of disordered eating, a lot of dieting, a lot of being unkind to your body, you may need time to heal and just getting familiar with yourself without scale data. Initially, you may just need to focus on healing your relationship with your food first and learning what are your true hunger cues, like when you really are hungry, when you're not hungry, what you like, what you dislike. You may need to heal something else because sometimes the scale can be a distraction and you will still lose weight. I think one of the scariest things is like we get so hungry, we've been taught like with weight loss and with weight management or wellness, like you have to have the scale. But what I have found, you still lose weight. We need to do a big study like that, where you compare, where you look at weigh on the scale. I know we have done, there's studies out there where you compare daily weighing versus weekly weighing, et cetera, but I really would like to see the study where we do a completely non-scale approach to a using the scale and seeing the people, because what I see, and I bet you probably see too in your own practice is that it ends up about the same. And some people, honestly, they just need to learn how to reconnect with themselves, reconnect with food, reconnect with loving to move your body, not just exercise, but actually loving to move and get physical, get to control your stress, all of those things and removing the stress of the scale. And so I think that's an important thing for people to think about, knowing when you need the scale and when you don't. And what the scale is telling you and what it isn't. And there's just so many triggers that are out of your control that impact the scale. So knowing what are your uncontrollable weight gain triggers and not taking those as data, taking those as information, but not trying to change them because you can't change what's uncontrollable. You can't change the fact that, you know, grandma Sylvia had obesity and then there was a familial history of diabetes and metabolic syndrome. I can't change those things, but the controllable weight gain triggers, I can change my sleep deprivation. I can change my stress management. I can change my relationship with food. So I'm not soothing myself by eating food. So those are the things that I think people really should think about as you're venturing into your healthy, happy way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with that. And that I think it is possible to reach a point where the scale doesn't bother you. But for so mm-hmm. many of us that have been indoctrined in diet okay. culture our whole life, if you're trying to do all this other like self-care type work to do this real work that creates the lasting weight loss, mm-hmm. and you're stepping on the scale every day that all the like emotional triggers that that scale number Mm -hmm. creates in you Mm -hmm. will take your mind off the things that actually matter. Mm -hmm. And so I totally agree that often just taking time where you don't worry about what the number is saying and you focus on the behavior that -hmm. you're trying to develop, not what the result in one measurement, which would be the scale is, I think can be really good. Absolutely. All right. Can you tell people where to find you?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, well, I can be found at my website, which is www.embraceyouweightloss.com. Excellent.
0: And your book, where can people find your book?
1: Oh, sure. So my book is available on Amazon or you can, if you come to the website, embraceyoubook. So Y-O-U and then book.com, there's a landing page that'll take you to it. I'll also help you to, you can join my virtual book club where you'll get a weekly email to kind of accompany your reading of the book. I'll also be holding live events periodically. So that'll help make sure that you're connected with that as well. And then on all social media platforms as well at EmbraceUMD.
0: Awesome. And what's just what's in the book, just so people can know whether they want it. I assume a lot of what you've talked about is in there, but <laughs> what other things are in there?
1: Absolutely. So the book, first of all, I guess we should reintroduce the name of the book is Embrace You, Your Guide to Transforming Weight Loss Misconceptions into Lifelong Wellness. And really what this is, it is not about me or, you know, just sharing my journey or anything, but this is about helping you and empowering you with your own individualized wellness guide. It'll help you lose weight, but it also will help you dive into those other parts of your life like we talked about that you may have forgotten and that are contributing to that number. on this scale. So each chapter takes you on a journey. So we've First chapter is release perfectionism and embrace progress. <laughs> Second chapter is release calories in versus calories out. Embrace weight loss is complicated. Energy in versus energy out. Third chapter is your healthy weight. And you're going to release the BMI, embrace your healthy weight. And then we go into the happy weight. We talk about stress coming up with your stress management plan, your sleep management plan. So it's really meant to be a guide to just help you put it all together. Because I think, you know, so often when you go in the weight loss space, there's the nutritionist, there's the fitness person, there's the doctor, and no one's like telling you, okay, big picture, what do I need to do for me and putting it all together. So embrace you as your guide to coming up to putting your whole weight loss and wellness strategy together.
0: Awesome. That sounds really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to be interviewed for the podcast today. I think that a lot of what you've talked about, it will help a lot of the physicians listening.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm always happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me, Siobhan. And thank you to your listeners for taking the time to listen and being open to learning something new, because really that openness is what's going to help you on your journey to embrace you.
0: Absolutely. So many good things in there. Like I said at the beginning, I really enjoyed this interview. It was so nice to meet Sylvia and get a chance to chat with her. Our views on weight loss and what it takes to lose weight are very similar. And those are based on a lot of experience, right? Both of us have a lot of experience behind our opinion that you can't just fit yourself into a diet and expect to lose weight and keep it off. You have to take the information that you're given, take everything that you know and you learn, and you have to custom design it for you in your own life to make it actually last. Because if you want to lose weight and you want to keep it off, you need to actually enjoy the process because that's what you will have to do for the rest of your life to keep it off. And so taking the time to design a way of doing it for yourself that you actually enjoy works. And that's the only thing really that works. Trying to fit yourself into another diet doesn't work. You've done that. We've all tried it, right? It it just doesn't last. This is what I teach inside Stress Eating SOS, my coaching program for physicians. The next group will be opening in January. If you want to be at the front of the line to know as soon as dates are released, get access to some exclusive bonuses, head over to physicians.ca forward slash SOS and get your name on the wait list, get your name on the invitation list so that you know as soon as we're getting ready to open doors and you can join us and start developing your customized approach to weight loss that will get you to your goals and keep you there because that's the important part, right? All right, thank you so much for listening, guys. Have a fantastic week. We'll talk
1: to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.